beautiful song. Um, text for that song seems almost biblical, doesn't it? Sure is. Great to hear scripture put to, to music like that. We are in the book of Romans. And believe it or not, we are finished with Romans 8. So uh, we'll be moving on to Romans 9 today. <clears throat> Romans 8, as we saw, was a, just a tremendous chapter on the great spiritual victory we all enjoy. Romans 8 begins with the declaration of no condemnation. It ends with the blessed assurance of no separation. So we have no condemnation to those who are in Christ in 8.1 and no separation in 8.39. And those two things are the bookends of assurance of faith of the one who believes in Christ. Now if God would have, would have led Paul to end this great epistle at Romans 8.39, we would all have gone home blessed and satisfied and praising God thank you for that great epistle but there's more to the story there is more to life and there's more to be considered for one thing since we have this victory that we saw so wonderfully in Romans 8 since we have this victory how shall we then live. And that is answered in chapters 12 through 16. In fact, chapter 12, one picks up this very thread based upon the assurance of, of uh, no condemnation and no separation of Romans 8 and, and ask, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. And Romans 12.1 starts the very practical section of how we live in light of this great salvation. But between 8 and 12, we have, of course, chapters 9, 10, and 11. Uh, and they are... Uh, they answer practical and theological questions about Israel. How does the gospel relate to Israel? Um, we are not so used to thinking in terms of the relation of the gospel to Israel. I, I doubt very many of you spent much time this last week wondering, hmm, wonder how the gospel relates to Israel. It probably wasn't foremost on your mind. But it was certainly uh, on the mind of those in the uh, early church since the church was made up primarily of Jews at the beginning, of course, and then even wherever Paul went, where did he begin his preaching? He went, first of all, to the synagogue, to the Jews. Romans 1.16, he says the gospel is, first of all, to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. And so it flavored everything that they did in the early church. But it's not just because it, uh, it was obviously related to them but because it is part of God's plan that it uh, applies not only to them but to us today that we ought to want to know well what about the Jews what, what about Israel 
what happened there and what's going to happen with Israel in the days to come, especially in the end times. And so these three chapters address that issue. Uh, first of all, we need to understand God's plan. Let's look at Romans 9, 1 through 5, which is uh, as far as we'll get today. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren my countrymen according to the flesh who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law the service of God and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom according to the flesh Christ came who is over all the eternally blessed God Amen so we need to understand God's plan. What about Israel? There are several questions that come to mind and are answered in these three chapters historical, theological, and practical questions. Just to kind of give you an idea of, of those three, first of all, some historical questions. When you turn to the pages of the Old Testament, Israel is undoubtedly the chosen people of God. If you were to ask anyone back then, who are the people of Jehovah, the people of God, it was Israel. They were the chosen people. And yet when we come to the New Testament, we find that those chosen people, historically, for thousands of years, the chosen people are enemies of the gospel. In fact, look at Romans 9, uh, excuse me, 11.28. Romans 11.28 says, Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies. So how could those who were the covenant people of God, the chosen ones of God, how could they at this point now be enemies of the good news of Jesus Christ? So it raises some historical questions. What happened there? The, the majority of the Jews rejected Christ rejected the gospel. But why has that happened? Especially since the gospel was first of all to the Jews. So that's one of the questions we'll try to answer in the next three chapters. Secondly, theological questions arise. Romans 1 through 8. Paul made a, uh, a very careful and powerful case that a right relationship with God which is by redemption being made right with him being declared justified that a right relationship with God never came through the law 
and never is obtained through outward rituals like circumcision. Added to that, what apparently belonged to or was promised to Israel now belongs to believers in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile. Christians are Abraham's heirs. Christians are God's appointed children now. Christians are the possessors of the Spirit and heirs of God's glory. This raises serious theological questions. <clears throat> Listen to how uh, Douglas Moo speaks of this. He says regarding this problem, of course, Paul could have cut the Gordian knot by simply claiming that the church had taken over Israel's position and leaving it at that. <clears throat> and that, by the way, is the, the easy but wrong answer that some <coughs> theological tracts take, that the church has just simply replaced Israel. But what then would become of the continuity between the Old Testament and the Gospel? From the, for the Jewish claim to privileged status arises not simply from a self-generated nationalistic fervor. It is rooted in the Old Testament. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be His people. Deuteronomy 7.6 Paul could not jettison these promises for to do so would be to jettison the gospel. The gospel, after all, is the gospel of God, Romans 1.1. And the God of whom Paul speaks is none other than the God who has spoken and acted in Israel's history. Right? Same God, Old Testament, New Testament. Same God. So whatever God has said in the Old Testament must pertain to some degree in the New Testament. What's the continuity, congruity between those? It's a... Moves point here. Paul must then demonstrate that the God who chose and made promises to Israel is the same God who opened the doors of salvation to all who believe. To do so, Paul must prove that God has done nothing in the gospel that is inconsistent with his word of promise to Israel. That the gospel he preaches is not the negation but the affirmation of God's plan revealed in the Old Testament. And what Mu is saying here in one sentence summarizes what Paul is going to do in these three chapters. So I want to read it one more time. Paul must prove that God has done nothing in the gospel that is inconsistent with his word of promise to Israel. That the gospel he preaches is not the negation but the affirmation of God's plan revealed in the Old Testament. It is for this reason that Paul quotes the Old Testament so often in Romans 9 through 11. In fact, a third of all Paul's quotations of the Old Testament are found in those three chapters. He is seeking to demonstrate the congruity between God's word in Scripture and God's word in Paul's gospel. At the same time, then, Paul is demonstrating that God is consistent faithfully fulfilling all his promises whether they are found in the Old Testament or the New Testament. These chapters contribute to Paul's exposition of the gospel 
by showing that it provides fully for God's promises to Israel when those promises are rightly understood. Therefore, as point number one says here, we need to understand God's plan. The gospel is not plan B. It's, it's not as if God made a mistake in the Old Testament and said, I've got to fix this and do something different in the New Testament. The gospel was the plan from the beginning when Adam and Eve fell. The gospel was the plan. And the promises of the Old Testament are being fulfilled in the New Testament through the gospel and eventually in God's unfolding plan for Israel even in the future. So there are historical questions, theological questions to be answered, and then some practical questions as well. For instance, Romans 8, as we saw last week, ends with the great question, what shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? And the answer, of course, that Paul gives is nothing nothing nor no height, depth, life, death, angels, things to come, things present, any, nothing will ever separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing will separate us. But the question may come up. In the churches, made it primarily of Jews at the beginning, well, what separated Israel? If they were the chosen people, if God had a covenant with them, and that covenant is no longer valid, how do we know he won't break the covenant with us? The question is often phrased something like this. If God did not keep his promises to his chosen people, Israel, how can we expect him to keep his promises to us as Gentile believers? Well, the problem is in the question. God did not fail in his promises to Israel. God did keep his promises to Israel and is fulfilling his promises to Israel. A couple of things to consider that, that Paul will lay out for us here. One is that his promises were given to faithful Israel and to faithful Israelites. The song that was just sung, Psalm 91, was about a faithful Israelite. And to that one, God says, I will protect. I will have my hand upon his life. So the promises were given to faithful Israel and to faithful Israelites. Secondly, the gospel is the long-promised fulfillment of God's plan, not a new direction. It is the long-promised fulfillment of the plan. So what about Israel? These chapters will unfold those kinds of questions and show how God is indeed fulfilling His plan. And what about God's promises in particular? Look at verse 6 here of chapter 9. This uh, verse 6 
is a key verse to unlock the whole section, all three chapters. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. That is, it isn't that God's word failed, that what God's promises were didn't come to pass. It is not that there's a problem with what God has said. It is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, and uh, we'll see how that works next week. A very, very significant point. But for now, we know that the word has not failed. It's because there are some or even many Jews who do not believe does not mean that God's promises to Israel have failed. Now, to make a more contemporary illustration of this, imagine that uh, a person attends church and, and may even attend fairly regularly, but that person who attends worship service at a church has no faith in God, no commitment to Christ, no fruit of the Spirit. Now, is the problem with God's promises or with God's gospel? Or is it with the person? We would not say, well, the reason that person is, is uh, not acting like a Christian is God's promises failed somewhere or the gospel just isn't big enough to include him or something we would say that person is unconverted. He's not a believer. And so he cannot claim to have the fruit of the Spirit because he doesn't have the Spirit dwelling in him and so forth. So we need to understand God's plan. And that's, that's what Paul is introducing here in Romans 9. Secondly, we need to grieve for the lost by speaking the truth in love, notice how, how Paul lays out his heart here in the first two verses of Romans 9. I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. He is, he is serious about this. To, to the Jews, Paul certainly seemed anti-Jewish. Because he said that circumcision avails you nothing. You don't have to be circumcised. And you don't have to keep all the ceremonial laws and the washing of hands and all those things. It's not going to help your soul condition at all. And, and to the Jews, he seemed like an enemy. <clears throat> and so he, he wants to make the case. He's not saying those things because he's against them or... Uh, doesn't have a heart for them he's expressing his, his seriousness here and he calls Christ and the Holy Spirit as his witnesses I tell the truth in Christ I am not lying my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit as God is my witness Paul is saying and he displays his heart for them too. Look at this, verse 2. That I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart because of the lost condition of most Jews. Look at also at uh, chapter 10, verse 1. 
Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. That's what Paul wanted. That's why his heart was breaking. That's why he says, I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. He is speaking the truth and often it is a hard truth for them to hear. But he wants them to know he is speaking it out of a broken heart. He is speaking it in love. Now, just a short side rabbit trail here. He says, I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. This is the same apostle who in Philippians says, Rejoice evermore. Rejoice without seeking. Without ceasing. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. The Paul who is always rejoicing is the same Paul who's saying, I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. Do those two things seem incompatible? If they do, it's because you have not understood joy. Joy is not the same as happiness. I can have great grief about someone who's passed away or someone who is lost in their sins or maybe even a believing brother who is going down a wrong trail. I can have great grief in my heart about that and yet have the joy of the Lord always with me as well. Those two things are not inconsistent. Jesus grieved over Israel. He cried over the city. He wept when Lazarus died. He, he had uh, very strong emotions about the, uh, the Pharisees. And yet, continual joy. Then Paul says here something which is rather startling. Verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh. I, I could wish that I myself were accursed. The word accursed here is anathema. Paul only uses it several times, 1 Corinthians 6, that any who deny Christ be accursed but also Galatians 1, 8 and 9, where it says, if anyone comes to you with any other gospel than what I preach, let him be accursed. Anathema. Very strong term that Paul says, I could wish that I myself were anathema, accursed from Christ. And based upon that preposition from, uh, which you Greek students, uh, that is, it's apo, it's uh, like away from. Some have taken, based on the strength of that preposition and the placement of it, uh, added to the translation and cut off. Notice your translation may say that. That might be accursed from and cut off from Christ. Kind of the idea of that Paul is getting to here. Now, that is, that is a startling statement, isn't it? 
Paul, who was just preaching the gospel, eight chapters of the glory of the gospel, says, I could wish myself cut off from that. And then when you think about the end of Romans 8, nothing will separate us, cut us off from the love of Christ, but I could wish myself, in other words, if it were possible to do so, for the sake of my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh. Is it even appropriate to wish such a thing? Would you so lightly cast off the gospel? Would you so lightly give up heaven? Would you so lightly esteem eternal life in Christ that you could wish yourself accursed? When I first read that verse as a young believer, I was actually teaching through the book of Romans having been saved for three whole years. I was still in the army. And I got to that verse and I thought, there's something wrong with Paul. He made a mistake here. Years and years of slow maturing have taught me that Paul was not wrong. Look at Exodus chapter 32. Exodus 32, and we'll pick up the story at verse 30. This is the golden calf incident. Remember when Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the, the Ten Commandments? And... Um, while he's up there in the cloud and the smoke and the thunder and lightning and the people are down below and they're kind of uh, afraid and then they get kind of bored and they decide to have a party then they decide to melt all their gold together and make an idol for God. And they, well, what shall we make it of? Well, we'll make it of a calf. Moses comes down and he is angry with him. Do you know that Moses is the only one who ever broke all Ten Commandments at the same time? <laughs> and God is of a mind, it appears, to wipe out all Israel, his chosen people. That's where we're going to pick up the story here in Exodus 32, verse 30. Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin. So now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, if you will, if you're willing to, God, Forgive their sin. But if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. Moses was willing to be blotted out for their sake, to be wiped out for them. If God was of a mind to forgive them, great. But if not, God, then, then take me. Look at Galatians 
Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. We were all accursed, you see, because of our own sin. We were accursed, but Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. How did he do it? This text tells us, having become a curse for us. In other words, he was considered anathema. He was accursed for us in our place. As it is written, curses everyone who hangs on a tree, a reference to his being nailed to the cross. And he was willing to be accursed for us. Now, when we go back to Romans 9, it is in light of those things, I believe, that Paul is making this statement. With the historical background of Moses being willing to, if it were possible, be blotted out for his people, but even the greater example of Christ who is willing, willing to be accursed for his people, that is, the ones who would come to him in faith. Not only was he willing to do it, he was accursed for you. What Paul is saying, I could wish myself, Christ actually did. He fulfilled. What Paul is saying here then is completely Christ-like in attitude. Third, <clears throat> we need to be true patriots. Does anyone know what next Sunday is? What date of the year? 9-11-2011. You remember where you were 10 years ago next week? I remember exactly where I was and what was going on. That uh, incident sparked nationalistic zeal and patriotism uh, like I had never seen, which lasted, unfortunately, for a short while. It also sparked some religious interest. People were coming to churches more and wanting answers and looking at the end times more closely. We know that the Apostle Paul certainly had a missionary zeal to take the gospel to the nations. He was called to be a missionary to the Gentiles but primarily, wherever he, he went, his, start, his heart was still for the Jews. Could wish myself accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh. He never makes such a, a statement about the Persians. Could wish myself anathema for the Persians. Or the Cretans. Or anyone else. The patriotism is not destroyed by Christianity. Patriotism is intensified by it. 
Paul did not cease to be an Israelite when he became a Christian. We do not cease to be American or any, whatever nationality we might be any more than we cease to be men or women or fathers or mothers when we become Christians. It's part of our identity. And just as Christianity should make us better men, better mothers, it should make us better countrymen, better patriots. So me personally, as a patriotic American, what is my greatest desire for my nation? I have to admit that I keep kind of close tabs on politics. I probably listen to it too much for my own um, blood pressure's sake. And I could wish a turnaround in the economy. I could wish for a one-term president. I have my own political things I'd like to see happen, but overshadowing all that and much more important, I want to see my countrymen come to know Christ. And I will not see that battle won in the political arena it will only be as you and I, believers in Christ, share the good news with other people. To be the best patriotic American means to share the one good news message that will really transform people and bless our nation. And that's how I see Paul here. He was a patriotic Jew. But most of all, what he wanted for them is that Israel might be saved. And fourth, we need to guard our spiritual heritage. Verse 4 and 5. He speaks about the end of verse 3. My, my uh, countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. The heritage of the, the Israelites. <clears throat> well, who are Israelites? Uh, this stands in its own clause and serves as a heading for the whole series of what is to follow here. The designation Israelite is used on purpose instead of the politically and nationally oriented Jew. Israelite points to the special religious position of members of the Jewish community. It is no accident that in Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul generally abandons the use of the term Jew, which has been so prominent in chapters 1 through 8, in favor of the terms Israel or Israelite. Why does he switch now to use the term Israelite? Well, Israelite denotes one who belongs to Israel, the name given by God to Jacob and applied to his offspring. So the 12 sons of Jacob became the 12 tribes of Israel. It therefore suggests the people who are chosen by God, who belong to him in a special way and who are vessels of salvation to the world. 
<clears throat> but the word Jew is an abbreviated form of the name Judah. Judah. Israel became divided after Solomon into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom was dominated by the tribe of Judah. When the northern kingdom was taken into captivity and all that was left in the land for years was the tribe of Judah and some of Benjamin and they occupied the rest of the land, then, then it just became called Judah or for short, they were called Jews. But after the exile, uh, th it became applied to, to everyone who was in the Israelite nation. And, and by the time of, of Christ, that was a common word for them, short title Jew instead of Israelite. But in these chapters, Paul purposely uses Israelites to recall the religious significance of this honorific title. For despite the refusal of most Israelites to accept God's gift of salvation in Christ, this title has not been revoked. Notice it is given in the present tense, who are Israelites. A hint at the very beginning that they are still God's chosen people in some way. And to them belong exceedingly great things and here's a list of them which we only have time to briefly think about the adoption to whom pertains the adoption <clears throat> now it's different from the adoption of Romans 8 the main difference being this in Romans 8 the adoption we are adopted into the family of God that's based individually on believers who come to Christ but the adoption of Israel was national the whole nation so it's Personal compared to national. And what had to happen now was for the, those who are national to come to understand the need for personal, individual belief. Uh, to whom belong the glory. The glory in the Old Testament was especially um, connected to the presence of God as in the Shekinah glory when God was present God promised that at the end times he would be among them be with them the, the covenant not just the Mosaic covenant but the from uh, Abraham on and those covenants eventually led to the new covenant of Christ the, the giving of the law the Mosaic law is probably mostly in view here and um, the idea that it was more than just a moral guide, a spiritual compass, it was also to teach them uh, as a tutor that they couldn't keep it and they needed a savior. The promises. Well, what happened to these promises? They become fulfilled in Christ. Not only that, verse 5, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. Of whom are the fathers or the patriarchs. The patriarchs are considered Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And much of what follows in chapters 9, 10, 11 is Paul's explanation of what believing Israelites can expect in regard to the promises given to 
the fathers. And then finally, the Christ. Paul ends with the most important item, of course, of all. Uh, from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. From whom, reminding them that the Messiah came from Israel, and again, according to the flesh. Paul has used that for the second time now, verse 3. He ends with, who are my relatives or my countrymen according to the flesh. And here he talks about whom, from whom Christ came according to the flesh. And that becomes both part of the answer and part of the problem. Because it's the problem in that if it is only according to the flesh that you have some kind of relationship with God, it's not sufficient. But it's part of the answer because Christ came in the flesh to give deliverance. And then Paul ends with this great Christological note of the deity of Christ, who is overall eternally blessed God. He is God, and He is the eternally blessed God who is above all, over all. Then our own spiritual heritage. We need, to, we need to guard ours. It's not enough to look at what advantages Israel had, what blessings they had, but how has God blessed us and what spiritual heritage has He given us? Just very briefly, He's given us this. The completed text of Scripture, the Old Testament and the New Testament, which is the inerrant Word of God, the very Word of God, which is more powerful than any two-edged sword. It is able to do a marvelous work in hearts. We have a commitment to, to teaching this book and to following this book and to handing down to our children intact the message of this book, word for word, this is God's word. As Jude 1, 3 says, we earnestly contend for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. It's our spiritual heritage to keep it intact, and especially the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have to get that right, understand that right, safeguard it, preach it, teach it, follow it, share it, and make sure the next generation does the same thing. We have been blessed beyond measure with the gospel and the spiritual heritage that we have. As the ushers come forward now for communion, part of the spiritual heritage we have is the partaking of communion. Because as we do so, we recall what is at the the bottom of the gospel, the foundation for it, is the death of Christ. His body given for us. His blood shed for us. And he tells us specifically to, to remember these things. It's part of our spiritual heritage. So we partake of this, this day. We do so not just as a, some kind of in, empty ceremony or ritual, but because it has very deep 
meaning for us. Our Savior died for us to redeem us from our sins. And so we invite anyone here who, who names the name of Christ as Lord and Savior to join us in this. This is the Lord's Supper.